We come to the end of the book of Genesis. This is the 50th chapter. If uh, you have a pew Bible and want to follow along, it is on page 46 in the Old Testament. Now, that's a slightly different version uh, than the one that I use, and so mine will sound a little different, plus occasionally I miss a word, which makes it even more different. But we come to the, the close of the story as Joseph and his brothers are all together in the land of Egypt. Now, when the news of their, um, when the brothers saw that their father had died, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us for the wrongs that we committed against him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Please forgive the sins and the wrongs that your brothers committed against you by treating you so badly. Please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When the message came to Joseph, he wept. Then the brothers came and threw themselves down in front of Joseph and said, We are your slaves. And he said, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? He said, What you did, you meant for harm. But God meant it for good to save many lives as is being done right now. Do not be afraid. I will take care of you and your little ones. And he spoke these words of reassurance and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. This message from his father came to Joseph. Please forgive the sins of these servants of the God of your father. And when Joseph heard these words, he wept. Now, why do you suppose he wept? I suppose it's possible that that could happen to any of us. Uh, We lose a loved one, someone who's special to us, and maybe sometime later we come across a book that they've written in or a picture of us with them or something that was important to them, and it draws uh, that memory back up for us and, and makes it a time of weeping. That's possible. But I really think something else is probably going on here in the story today. I think Joseph weeps because if these are the words of his father, his father just doesn't get him. If his father thinks that he's going to have to send word to Joseph at his death, take it easy on your brothers, then he's missed who Joseph has become and what Joseph is about. Or even worse, if it's his brothers who didn't report these words of their father, uh, Jacob, but actually made them up to cover themselves, that could even be worse. They also do not get what is going on here and who Joseph has become and, and their situation. They just don't get it. And I think when people don't get it, that is often a time of weeping for God's servants. Think about Jesus. We're told in the scriptures that Jesus wept on a couple of occasions. One is in the Gospel of John. His good friend Lazarus has died, and so he's going to Bethany and coming out to meet him as Martha and Mary. And they both say, a few moments apart, the exact same thing. You know, Jesus, if you'd have just gotten here earlier when he was still alive, you could have done something. As if Jesus is limited by whether a body is dead or alive. And Jesus' response to their mourning is, he weeps. I think because they don't get it. They don't get who he is and what he can do. And then uh, at the end of Jesus' life, 
In Luke 19, last week of his life, he's going into Jerusalem and we're told Jesus weeps again and basically says, daughters of Jerusalem, you don't get it. If only you knew the things that made for peace. For in about 30, 35 years, they'll rebel against the Romans and for good measure, they'll try it again within another 60 years or so. And Jerusalem will be torn apart and their inhabitants scattered all over the earth. Jesus weeps because they just don't get it. They don't get it. So this morning, if that's possible, that what's going on is Joseph cries because his brothers don't get it. I just want to ask this question, what is it they don't get? And then why didn't they get it? Well, it seems to me that it's pretty obvious what they don't get because Joseph gives them the answer here. What they don't get is even their mistreatment of Joseph was part of a larger plan that God used. And that God was able to use this mistreatment to bring about the saving and feeding of many lives in the world. And Joseph says, you know, I know you meant it for evil, but that's not how God used it. Think about this. Joseph spent 13 years as either a slave or a prisoner in the bottom of a, a dungeon. But in those 13 years, he's learned things he could never have learned in his father's house. He learns Egyptian. He learns how to speak it. He learns the culture. And apparently he's not really running things at his father's house. We're just told he just tells on his brothers when they don't do what they're supposed to do. But he's actually learned how to run a large household of a very important man, Potiphar. And then he later learns to run a prison. Joseph has learned Egyptian He's learned culture, language, he's learned administrative skills, all that bring him to one moment, that when the world is hungry enough to come to Egypt, Joseph will be ready. This has all worked in God's timing and God's plan. I know you've heard the illustration before, but I I think it's still true, which is notice that Jesus and Paul came at the exact right time in human history when the Roman Empire became the center of the world and there was a well-established transportation and communication network so news, especially good news, could travel all over the known world effectively and efficiently. And at that moment, Jesus appears on the scene. God's timing is always perfect. In, in these 13 years, when Joseph, uh, before Joseph ascends in Egypt, he's learned not only basic skills, he's learned about the faithfulness of God. He's figured out that God is with him, that on, because God is with him, the things he touches turn to gold. He's also figured out that he's there not for his own power needs, but he's there for a larger purpose. And Joseph's begun to grasp that. And so he's learned that there are bigger things going on here. I think Paul makes reference to this in Romans 8:28 when he said, "All things work for good with those who love God, who are called according to God's purposes, and that God's purpose was for us to be conformed to the image of his firstborn son Jesus." Let me quickly tell you, Paul's not saying the bad things that happen to you are really good. What Paul's saying is the bad things that happen to you submitted to God and the Holy Spirit can work in such a way as to help you become more like Christ. And that's what makes them good. They can be given to a larger plan of God. When something bad happens to you in life, it's probably bad. God's not asking you to call it good. 
God's asking you, though, to submit it to a higher purpose and plan. And in fact, good may come from this. It's never good to take somebody and throw them in the pit, sell them as a slave and tell their father that they died. That's not good. You can't call it good, but it can be used even for good. And Joseph knows that and he wants his brothers to know that. And he tells them that in chapter 45, which we read last Sunday. Joseph says, look, I was sent ahead to preserve your life. So to keep you alive, that, that's why I got here. That was the plan. But the brothers don't get it. And maybe even more painfully for Joseph, I have to think they don't get that he already forgave them. They don't get that he doesn't want revenge. He's told them that too when they came to see him. He gives them clothes. He gives them symbols we talked about last week of reconciliation. And he says, you know, stay here. Bring dad. I've got a place for you and for all your families. I'll take care of you. It's not a guy who wants revenge. Tells them that in chapter 45. But apparently the brothers, because they either have to make up the message from their father or report the message from their father, they don't believe it. They can't really believe that Joseph would forgive them after all that they have done. Simply put, they don't get it. So the question I have is, well, why didn't they get it? Well, I I know one answer because, because... I've just done the math, and I know that Joseph's brothers are already, by this time, a lot older even than I am. So you already know one reason they may not get it. They could have forgotten. It's been apparently 17 years um, since Joseph told them, look, God sent me here to be a remnant. And gave them all this clothes and got them established in the land. Because we're told Jacob, his father, lived about 17 years in Egypt. Well, we can forget a lot of things in 17 years. But would you forget something like that? Would you forget that you ought to be dead and you're alive? That you ought to be starving and you're well fed? That someone you'd given up for dead is now ruling the known world? I don't think you missed that. So why is it they don't get it? Well, I think I've got an answer I want to try on you this morning. Um, I appreciate your kindness in letting me not be here last week. I'd just be here by video. um, Because I was in the next building and we were uh, doing a retreat. And one of the basic foundational elements of this retreat is this uh, piece uh, that I want to pass on to you because I think it's, to me, worth the whole weekend, and I hope it will be that way for you. I want to pass on to you this. New insight and new information never change lives. Because you come to a new aha understanding, it does not mean that your life will change. Insight does not bring change, said the leaders of this retreat. And I think biblically, I can back them up. What brings change is the experience of living in and applying and acting on that insight. For example, your teachers, when you were growing up, gave you homework. They didn't do it because they were mean. They had taught you formulas you could use. They had taught you principles of how sentences were arranged. They taught you insights. But they knew you would never make them your part of your life unless you worked with them, unless you actually acted on them. I believe this is why God gave the Jews 613 commandments. It wasn't to be mean at all. It's, it's to help you come to understand what's here and actually begin to live it out. Here's 613 ways where you can live out who God is and what God is doing in your life. You've heard it said before, and I think it remains true, that the longest journey anybody ever takes is from their head to their heart. 
what they understand to be what they actually live and internalize. I think that's what's going on with the brothers and Joseph. What did Joseph do for 13 years as a slave and then as a prisoner? Well, what he did is he saw everything that he tried work. He got the sense that God was with him. He got the sense that he was really special. He got the sense that people came to love him and value and appreciate him. He lived into that every day. So do you think the dream that had been given him so many years ago, he might have begun to internalize and think this might really happen? Even in a dungeon, he got the sense that he was meant for more because of his experience. And then after that... Then he gets elevated, and there's seven good years, and then there's, there's the bad years, and there's another 20-plus years where, as second in command of Egypt, he rides around the chariot, and everybody goes, make way, and they kiss his ring. For 20-plus years, he's treated as you are somebody really significant. Do you think he's figured that out by now? That matches, that matches his insight. He knows God has put him there for something really big, and all of his experience now testifies to it. Well, what have his brothers been doing all that time? Well, for 13 years, they had to have a cover-up. For 13 years, they couldn't tell their father what really happened to their brother, that they sold him as a slave and deceived their father. For 13 plus years, 13 years plus a few years of famine, they engaged in cover-up. They lived with guilt. They lived with shame. And they never knew that their father really loved them. Because they never told their father the hard truth about their life. Have you ever wondered if you told somebody the hard truth about your life, whether they'd still love you or not? Do they love me or do they just love the image of me that I've projected to them? The brothers don't know. Because they can't and won't tell the truth. They have no experience. That what God believes about them is actually true in their life. And so Joseph goes one direction and they go the other. And part of it is not of what's in their head, but what eventually has made it or not made it to their heart. Joseph had a dream that they would bow down to him. And it's interesting here in the 50th chapter of Genesis that they come and they throw themselves before Joseph I don't know if he reflected on it very long, but he wouldn't have had any trouble believing it because he had lived in for so many years to the plan and the dream that God had for him. And his brothers, I don't know what they've been doing. It's been 17 years that they'd all been in Egypt and they apparently hadn't made any progress. They still didn't trust Joseph. They still didn't know that God had done all this for their benefit and the benefit of a larger world. I suppose there are a lot of reasons for that. But part of the reason is what's in your head, no matter how brilliant, no matter how true, has got to make it to your heart or it's not going to get in your life. So here's what I want to let you know. Here's the insight that Dinah and I in this building and Michael and Mel in the gym have been trying to get across for four Sundays. Here's the insight. You are very special to your Heavenly Father. He loves you and values you deeply. God the Father could not love you any more today than he loves you already. No, nothing you've done in the past can make God love you any less. You are a valuable child of God. You deserve and ought to wear that robe. 
the robe of Joseph is your robe. You are valued. And you can wear that robe and it can sustain you when you're in the prison and when you're in the pit. If you will wear it. And if it is true about you, then it is also true about other people, even those people who have hurt you. That God must love them in the same way as well. So we tried to suggest last week that the natural extension of that then is that we start to live in forgiveness and reconciliation with each other. I think these are pretty nifty ideas. I didn't think, I didn't think of them. I didn't make them up. But I assure you they are not going to be reality in your life and my life until we experience it. So I want to suggest three things that I think you could do this week to begin to experience the truth of your value in front of a heavenly father who loves you deeply. And just a side comment, um, Mel Swartz said something a couple weeks ago that really stuck with me. He said, if you were raised in a king's house or a queen's house, you know, royal, raised at royalty, you would know the king as your father long before you would know your king as the lord of the whole realm. You'd know the king as one who was there when you're, to change your diapers, to make sure that you were fed, to listen to you, to rock you. That's how you'd know. And then one day you'd go, Shazam. Like Gomer would be like, this guy loves me so much, he's also the boss of everybody. But you'd never lose that you were a loved child. Problem is, we wonderful Protestants start the other end. And we try to scare the hell out of people, telling them how powerful and mighty God is as the Lord of all the universe. And then if you get that straight, oh, oh, oh by the way, he loves you. you know, how are we going to get there? It's very hard. I know it's hard. Three suggestions. Here's the first one. To believe and accept that you are forgiven, you need to forgive somebody this week. You need to go to the list of contacts or the Rolodex or whatever you've got in your head. Now, you don't have to pick the hardest case, but just pick one and forgive them. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's not an exchange. If you don't forgive those, my Father is in heaven will not forgive you. And we read it like, oh, if we don't forgive, we won't get forgiven. I, I really don't believe that. I think Jesus is on a higher plane than we normally can think and reach. What he's saying is if you don't forgive others, then you obviously have not owned and applied and experienced forgiveness in yourself. You really don't believe in it. So you're probably unforgiven. You probably haven't accepted it if you can't extend it. I think it's just a matter of that. So in your, in your life, there's somebody you need to forgive. It won't be easy. But you need to do that to live into your own forgiveness. Second thing, Joseph figured out that he was here in part to feed the hungry and help the helpless. That was a big part of his identity. He says, I will take care of you and your children. Another translation is little ones. But just think of, of those who are vulnerable, those who are in need. Scripture often talks about the widows and, and the orphans. A lot of you have already done that. And, I mean, we couldn't even hold all the clothes that you brought today on the clotheslines. But just to cement it. That God has a big plan for your life, and that plan includes in your obedience and faithfulness to God, helping other people find a way to help someone in need this week. Maybe they're lonely, maybe they're sick, maybe they lack something. 
go to them. And you'll begin to realize God's plan and purpose for you. Then finally, this one's a little harder to get your arms around, and you'll figure that out in a minute. But um, next Sunday, the the Roman Catholic Church is going to honor a woman from Germany. Her name is Hildegard. Hildegard lived in the 12th century. She was a nun, a mystic, a composer, an administrator running a large convent. She did many things. But among the things that she learned and experienced in life was this. She said, "You, you need to let God hug you, she said. Let the arms of God's mysterious love embrace you. You cannot, I think, fully realize you're a child of God until you climb up in his lap. And so find a time or place to be alone this week. I know it sounds a little weird. Find a chair, wherever, get in a fetal position, whatever works for you, and just ask God to put God's arms around you as the Heavenly Father, to hold you close in a way even that the best of our earthly mothers and fathers couldn't do. Begin to experience that. And I'm going to tell you, this was interesting, as I read on about Hildegard. Uh, in the 12th century, uh, her large convent also had a graveyard. Well, the officials above her found out that there was somebody buried in the graveyard next to her convent who had been excommunicated from the church and never got back in. So they gave her the order that they were going to come and dig his body out of the cemetery, cemetery and remove the grave. Remove him. He's excommunicated. And the 12th century Hildegard's response was basically, I don't think so. And she went and stood on that spot and resisted. And they couldn't do it. It finally broke through to her. This is what I realized. This was a woman who, because she was hugged by God, who could hug the living and hug the dead Hug the mighty, hug the weak, hug the full, hug the hungry, hug the rich, hug the poor, hug the friend, hug the foe. She could do it because she knew in her heart and life and experienced it that she was loved. Joseph had a robe. That robe told him that he was loved that he was valued, that he was special. And he wore it. And that robe carried him through his life. And it will carry you as well on your journey from your head to your heart to the world.